Hello, I'm Ben Eshmade and welcome to another edition of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast. In this episode, we sit down at the piano in central London to speak to one of the finest American pianists of his generation, Jeremy Denk. The Academy is looking forward to a 12-day tour of the USA with Jeremy in early 2019, the orchestra's 60th year, in which he will present Benjamin Britten's radiant young Apollo for piano and strings, plus two beguiling concertos by Mozart, a composer the musician is incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about, as we'll discover. Before we hear from Jeremy, let's first have some thoughts on the pianist by his good friend, the Academy's music director, Joshua Bell. Well, Jeremy Dink and I go all the way back to, let's see, we both went to Indiana University uh, and played together at the Spoleto Festival many, many years ago. And and, uh, I was really struck by his musicianship. And he's a musician that I respect extremely highly. So when when I started playing more and more with the Academy, I I really was hoping that he would come along and be part of the family. And uh, he's an amazing musician. He's somehow manages to be incredibly intelligent in his analysis of music but yet it's incredibly uh improvisatory when he plays it you never really 100% know what's going to come up from his fingers because uh he's really in the moment and and he allows for uh freedom in music i learned so much from playing with him and i and i think it's great for the orchestra to get to play with him as well so to jeremy who we talked to about the art of performance his passion for writing and his love of pasta i think today was kind of a typical day i woke up in a hotel completely confused where I was. I just came from Helsinki where I was the last three or four days. Then I began to get my head together and found a place to practice and then um, had some rudimentary breakfast at Marks and Spencer and went off and practiced Mozart for three hours and now here I am. So <laughs> that's typically how you know my life is. It's just finding time to practice and then, then obsessing and then, and then, um, then eating. And how many sort of pieces are you working on at once? What's sort of going on in your head? I was just playing uh, Beethoven first concerto, and now I'm playing Mozart, um, the great concerto number 25, 503. So uh, that's two pieces. And I've got a, a few programs of Mozart violin sonatas going through my head and uh, the Goldberg versions. A lot of pieces, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, we, we have a piano in front of you. Um, I'm curious to ask what fascinates you about it. Maybe you don't ask that question because it's always been there, but... Is it the design of the piano? Is it, is it the sound? Is it the idea of something mechanical allowing something emotional to happen? I'm not sure I had a choice, really, you know? I started with the piano because it was in the house. We made a lot of piano records. Had Murray Pariah playing Mozart concertos. And it just was a natural place for me to vent a little bit when I was a child, you know, four years old or something. And, and apparently I asked for lessons. And once the connection got forged, there was no, there was no going back, you know? I tried to play viola a little bit when I was in high school, and I enjoyed it because it was social. Piano is a very complicated instrument. Mm. You know, there's a lot of intermediary technology between you striking the key and the sound coming out. It's almost needlessly complicated. You know, what I find is that no matter how terrible the piano is, you can you can always find some beautiful singing soul in it. Really, you know, there's always if you strike it the right way. So there is something wonderful about trying to, in a way, seduce each piano into sounding good. Yeah. <laughs> and is it also about the physical connection in regards to your hands? I mean, when, I, when I'm watching a pianist, everyone's position and the way they use their hands and, and touch the piano, the gestures, is very much is very personal, I think. Well, do you have a few hours to talk about that? Like, <laughs> we, could, we could really go down the rabbit hole if you want. I mean, uh, you know, the 
there are all these different um, hinges and, and systems in the pianist, you know, uh, that in a way mirror the ones that are inside the mm. piano, right? Uh, there are all these levers and weights, <laughs> and you know, and we have the, the fingers themselves, which can come up and down at various speeds with various strengths, so quickly, slowly, you know, caressing and attacking like a typewriter or whatever. And then once you go up the, the system a little bit, you have the wrists, you know, which is a very complicated and beautiful hinge and can be used in all kinds of of ways quickly like a kind of bouncing a basketball or whatever or you can keep it rather more fixed you know as part of then and that connects it more to the arm and the elbow and then if we get up to the shoulder and the back i mean every part of it it functions and every part of it affects um affects the sound of course and the way that it feels to play but there's two really important things in music making for me one is what Fred Fangler called like the the almost unnoticeable variability of the tempo, that the time mm. changes ever so slightly to reflect the events that happen in the notes. You know, so time becomes this beautiful, beautiful, um, yeah, it responds. And then, and similarly, when you strike the key, the, one of the most fundamental things that we have at the piano, one of our best control variables, is the speed of the attack, how fast the key goes down. And that can be controlled in incredibly subtle ways, you know? There's ways to play loudly with very slow speed, for example. You'd think that going faster into the key would be louder and slower, mm. would be softer. But in fact, often when you want to play soft, you play very quick the attacks. And when you want to play very loud and then grandly, you play with very slow attacks. There's mm. a beautiful and strange quasi-mathematical relationship. And you can spend so much time obsessing about it. Is a lot of it instinctual, though? Is it about digesting the piece of music that you're going to play and allowing it to sort of float in your mind for a while before you physically play it or play it again? I think some of it always has to be instinctive, you know, but um, each composer has a different style, you know, and each style requires different kinds of sounds and different kind of attacks, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, so famously, for example, Mozart had a, had a very crystalline, you know, non-legato kind of... Um, chains of pearls of notes. As I mm. think Leon Fleischer uses that term. Um, little disconnected passage work that, that becomes connected through some other elegance and sense of the whole. But by the time of Beethoven, he played with a more legato, mm. more pedal, I think more, in a way, singing, more what we would conventionally call singing, a little bit more romantic approach to the piano key. And so, you know, every time you play a piece, you, you decide you make all sorts of decisions based on just where you are, what language you're speaking, and, and what the music is intended to do, of course. Mm. And how much for you is playing as it would have been originally, and how much do you think interpretation is important um, for your performances? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a, well, it's kind of a false choice, right? It, what's, what's amazing in classical music, and this, I talk about this all the time, and I don't want to be tedious, but nowadays when we hear popular music, we're used to hearing it on a record, Right? or a CD or an MP3 or whatever it is. We hear the sound file, right? the sound item. And th therefore, the song is already made into sound. But for us classical musicians, there's a written page, and that has to be translated into sound. I think the word translation is pretty good for mm. it, because there's a lot of things the composer can and does write into the score. But there's a much greater number of things that they could never write into any score if that note comes a little sooner or a little later. Every note comes, for example, we don't play exactly the rhythm. We play everything a little bit early, a little bit late, depending on how we're feeling. You know, so there's a million little microscopic decisions, mm. right, <laughs> that go into making the score sound. So everything is interpretation in a certain way, mm. you know? You can play, there's, you know, we like to say that we play what's written, but, but it's never just that. 
That's a kind of a convenient fiction that we use, you know? And, and that's such a joy because the composer gives you all these beautiful clues. You know, here's a slur, here's a forte, here's a piano, here's a set of harmonies that I want you to play, or a melody, you know? And then you have to figure out the whys and the wherefores. And some of that's based on history and music theory, and some of that, of course, is based on, like, your heart and soul and how you feel that music ought to be, what it ought to say, what the phrase is doing. And it's a very intimate thing as well, isn't it? I mean, you, you, your practice on your own most of the time, and then even when you're in the concert hall, there is a space between you and the audience, and it feels like they're eavesdropping a little bit. I guess it's private. If it's in front of thousands of people, <laughs> thousands of people it doesn't feel that private. It's, you know, sometimes you can be on stage and it feels like a salon or a living room that you're just sharing with everyone, and sometimes it really feels like a performance. You know, you're trying to transmit something into a giant arena and mm. send out some information and hope that it gets out there you know to the to the people you know in a way that that is beautiful and affecting so um you know a lot of my time is private solitary completely neurotic you know time alone at the piano just trying to communicate to myself you know and then it's always interesting when you switch modes from that to, to being in the hall mm. and speaking to all these people and then what you've said to yourself may not totally be sufficient. You feel you have to add some other, other thing. And that often happens in performance. You realize the thing that will make the phrase come alive. Perhaps it's like being an actor, you know, the idea of amplifying a little bit of yourself. Like being an actor in the sense that um, you inhabit, for example, in, the, in Mozart, which we're doing on this tour, everyone says, it's an obvious truth, Mozart was an opera composer, maybe first and foremost. Mm. That was his love, his great passion. And you can hear in his music always, that there are characters, you know, for four, four measures, it may be the stern count, you know, slightly reprimanding or announcing or something. And then for four more measures, it may be tender, loving peasant girl or, or whatever it is, you know, there's always the essence of Mozart's style is, is built on this dialogue of different characters. And so you're not just playing music in a way, but you're playing a, a little miniature opera drama. So that's different from just being you on the stage, of course. Mm. And you try to get into all these different personalities and characters and moods um, over the course of a piece. I was thinking about this. Mozart is a composer that I think most people will know. What is the quintessential character of Mozart for you? There's a lot to say about what's the quintessential character of Mozart, you know. And Mozart makes himself fresh. We don't have to necessarily work that hard except for looking and and imagining a little bit. You know, a lot of Mozart's music is is what we'd call the like a, the Viennese. There's the classical architecture of it, the sort of grandeur of it, like a great. If you're in Vienna, walking through all the wonderful buildings and the you know the churches, and then, but there, there's also um, the elegance. You know, you can imagine of of the pastries and the the wigs and the and all this all that. And then there's something else, which is, um, in a way, always tearing at the external. A, a beautiful order, incredible fluency and melody and control and then always this other darker thing you know and, and that's in the Viennese character too you know the Schubert went a little further with that and, and then Webern and Berg you know the, that deep expressivity and the sadness and sometimes in a way the facade of of all the elegance melts away and you see something within I guess that's one of the most important things for me about Mozart is that tension, both things coexisting. Charles Rosen said something amazing about that, that in his greatest moments of suffering and terror, the really darkest things, there's also always something very sensual, almost sexual, you know, something so beautiful 
about it. So like the Achich Fühls um, from the Magic Flute and the G minor symphony, other, other, you get this, again, there's a tear or tension between two opposed things. And uh, so that's so important to me. Is that there with the relationship between the uh, soloist and, um, in this case, the Academy of Master in the Fields? The, the soloist and orchestra relationship in the Mozart concertos is, sometimes it is, Beethoven was maybe more opposed, like a protagonist against the orchestra. Whereas in, in this case, well, often at the beginning, right at the beginning when the pianist first enters, usually there's something slightly disruptive. That happens in most Mozart piano concertos, that the orchestra has all this grandeur and, and the whole thing, great, great statement. And whatever the pianist do, does first is always different and comes out of almost nowhere. It's often a little bit cheeky and unpredictable. So that the element of the pianist against the orchestra is usually there in that sort of, no, I'm not going to allow this orchestra to shape everything. I'm going to shape it according to my own. And then gradually, then they begin to cooperate, the piano and the orchestra, and they do phrase together and accompany each other. But at, always at the beginning, he sets up the terms that there's um, sometimes a mischievous or sometimes challenging, you know, the famous, um, the beginning of the D minor concerto, you know. When the pianist comes in with that, a melody that we've not had, right? It's been hinted at in the orchestra. Just this unbelievable statement of sadness. Simple quarter notes, nothing, nothing too complicated, but just. Um, and then in the the concerto that I'm playing next week, the C major, which has got a lot of grand fanfares and. Yeah. When the pianist finally comes in, he comes in with these little, he or she comes in with these little, almost wisps, almost mm. puckish. And there's that amazing juxtaposition between something huge, uh, the, the grandeur of the one thing, and, mm. and the simple elegance of these little throwaway phrases that begin to add up into something grand, you know, finally. And Mozart is a great master of that kind of control of, of opposites, you know, mm -hmm. which never makes you feel that the piece is going to fall apart. It's just always within, you know, his masterful weaving. But there are, there, the elements are very um, contrasting. I was listening to the, the Mozart pieces you were going to play, and I, and I again, was trying to take away that knowledge of him as a composer and try and think what the music was reminding me of. Um, you, you spoke about the Mozart um, very much sort of being something that's sung. And I thought that was very much there in the pieces that you're, you're performing. The piano seems to kind of run away from the orchestra in, in these beautiful kind of, I don't know, soloistic vocal kind of passages. Uh, yeah, well, he was always thinking of the voice, you know, the, and he, he did know how to write a good tune. Yeah, among his many talents, you know, he wrote these tunes that have um, their own life within them, little imbalances and balances all put together, and they just, I was going to say that earlier, but there's just some, there's this sense of Mozart like a beautiful bubble, an idyllic bubble of, you know, genius, you know, of a certain mm. time, that within his music, he sometimes creates these little bubbles of time. That's one of the things that I love most about Mozart, too, is like, a phrase will be going along, sort of the way you predict, and then four bars, two bars, there'll be something happening, something simple like...
simple phrase, and then, and then the next time. There'll be eight bars of who knew where that came from, yeah? <laughs> you know, you just, and that's the sort of thing that he does. It's, it's, it's often like you just step into a different room yeah, for a moment. Mm. And it's like a, a ch- an inner chamber of the piece opens up. That happens in the concerto I'm doing now. The C major, which is so much in C major, right? And then very often it turns in, into the minor, and it's constantly shifting from one world to another, you know, wow. in this kind of terrifying way. And, and, and there's this amazing sense that the music is kind of ambivalent about light and dark. Yeah, for example, you have an innocent theme... And then the second time, there's this perfect little minor, and then uh, it vanishes again. And, and he keeps doing it so that the piece has this wonderful, you know, and that's present in all of Mozart, not always as extreme as in, as in yeah, that yeah. piece, but that, that element of... Um, it always seems like a stream of consciousness, but that seems unfair. It's not a stream of consciousness. That's more like Schumann, right? Schumann is <laughs> Chopin sometimes, although Chopin's more structured. You know, some of the Romantics are more stream of consciousness, but because um, the structure is always there in Mozart, right? But but that within it, you know, again, it's control of time. Yeah. That's that's really. I know it sounds like an academic thing to say, but it isn't at all. Because music is always like this. You know, music is a space where we go for time to be yeah. planned for us. It's like a little cosmos of time it's like, well, it's like the concert experience isn't it because that's one of those very few times where hopefully you switch your phone off try not to look at your watch yes, you, do. you know and that he plays with it constantly that's his that's his bread and butter you know he, he things come too soon things come too late you know, I, I have often had the experience in a concert hall that oh yes I, I can't wait for this piece to be over like we all have you know mm. but then Sometimes it happens that you get into the groove of the time of the piece, and then and then it changes you, you yeah. know, for a little bit, and that's I think incredibly valuable. And Mozart really knows knows how to do that. You're touring the USA with Academy of St. Martin in the Fields in February and March 2019, an orchestra you've worked with many times, most recently at Colorado's Bravo Vale Festival yeah. in 2016. Are you excited to collaborate with the ensemble again? You know, we had such a warm and wonderful time doing um, Bach concerti last time. And, and it grew so much over the course of, um, well, we played a lot of concerts. <laughs> and, and we had very different approaches to the pieces at first. And then there was this wonderful sense that we began to find each other, you mm-hmm. know. So I'm, I am delighted to resume that conversation with them. Of course, it's a group that I've known since I was a little kid from records and, you know, and I completely... Obsessed with her on radio, you know, yeah. became part of my whole life in a weird way. So, it's a, it's a kind of almost surreal experience to be mm. playing with them around the the U.S. Yeah, the tour includes performances of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. Twelve, Fourteen, um, and Britain's Young Apollo. We've touched on some of this already, but what do you particularly enjoy? Why would you choose this repertoire? Well, as I said, Mozart is one of my great loves. It's, it's probably the you know at twelve I realized that I loved Brahms. And I thought that was my first love, but I think I loved Mozart first. <laughs> the Mozart was the thing that that really got me and and sent me dancing around the living room 
a little bit when I was a child. So I'm always happy to play Mozart. Mm. And these pieces are, are from the, so the early middle Mozart, and they're, they're chamber pieces, and they have sorrows, but they're all contained within this kind of beautiful charm. So uh, we thought those would both be nice pieces to take on tour, and not played as often as some of the others. Um, yeah. It'll be a nice thing for me because I'm used to playing the same five or six over and over and over and over again. And now I'll get a chance to explore how to bring these pieces alive together. And of course, the Britain, Britain was a beautiful, beautiful craftsman like Mozart, a person of, if anything, his music is almost too controlled, if you know what I mean. He's just so meticulous, you know, and, and, and it's so beautiful. And so every note is placed elegantly you mm. know, where it ought to be from my point of view. So we thought that'd be a nice combination of pieces. I've never played Young Apollo, so it'll be an exciting adventure oh, wow. for me, yeah. <laughs> a special feature of the Academy is that they work without a conductor. Is this something you've done much of in the past? Um, how does it compare to the more uh, usual orchestra setup? Well, uh, you know, when you're doing Mozart concertos, you know, it was almost always, I don't know, it might have been always led from the keyboard in those days, as were symphonies very often, right? And mm. it was just sort of, the conductor was the keyboard player. And and they're used, I mean, that's what they're used to. It's, it's so easy for them to just do that. And they have such a history of knowing how to play together with various soloists. And, and of course, Joshua Bell, my longtime friend and colleague. Speaking of which, um, how did you happen to work with um, Joshua for the first time and obviously continue from there? Uh, Joshua and I met at Spoleto Festival, and I think it was in 2004, Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Korea, the American version. And we were doing a gala event for a friend of ours, Scott Nickrens. It was a birthday party. It was a gala. He wanted to play the Greek C minor sonata, and I happened to be around, and, and Scott said, you should play with this guy. And, mm. and so we played it together, and then that was the beginning of it. And then after that, he asked me to do the next tour. Then we did, I think, seven or eight years of tours together. Wow. Yeah. It was a lot of tours. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously your personalities very much align, I presume. We ha we're very different in some ways and very similar in some other ways. Uh, we both really like to communicate the story of the piece. Sometimes we have different ways of going about it, but of course we know each other's, you know, like we sit down to play together and I know what he's going to do and he knows what I'm, there's such a weird, um, it's a, it's almost like a sibling thing now <laughs> in, a, in a weird way with all the good and bad things that come out of that, yeah. <laughs> the Academy is visiting 12 different cities during this tour, including Goshen and Wabash in Indiana. As an alumnus of the University of Indiana, are you looking forward to returning to the state? I, I spent so much time in Indiana and, and in Bloomington, and which is a lovely, lovely place that mm. I would have never predicted to be as lovely as it was. And it was so lovely that I stayed there for a really long time and almost mm. never left. Um, so I'd say yes, I have an affection for Indiana and for Indianans. And, and, you know, it was an amazing miracle when they built that music school there and brought in all these basically by bringing in European emigres, you know, after the war, attracting all these amazing people. And then you create a kind of a ferment of musical thinking there. And it was still very much present when I was a student, and I'm sure it is, it is now. And my teacher, Shebak, who was there, and Starker, and so many of the other people that Joshua also knew, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've um, heard interviews with you before, and obviously teachers, those who helped you along the way were incredibly important. 
Well, I met Joshua's teacher, Gingold, of course, who was an amazing, but only had two lessons, I think, with him, which were mainly talking to the violinist. But there was something about Gingold, which is incredibly important thing about a teacher. It wasn't even as much what he said, but that the way he said things and the way he was there in the room, it made you want to play more beautifully for him. Starker was different. Starker was like, don't do this, do that, and all these this sort of incredibly practical, logical, rigorous advice. And it didn't always make you feel great, but it sent you off to work harder and harder and to have more control over what you were doing. Yeah, I've been writing a, a book about all these teachers, and many of my Bloomington, Indiana mm -hmm. teachers are in it, and then they are really fascinating, each character. And both uh, Shebuck, my piano teacher, and Starker, cellist, famous cellist who was there teaching. They were both Hungarian, and they both had complicated, it's a real interesting phenomenon after World War II, the sort of emotional world of having survived that, mm. you know, and been through it. They both had incredibly um, emotional things to say through music. They felt profoundly that this was a tradition that was incredibly valuable and, mm. the, and that the revelations you could get in a Mozart phrase were one of the most important things in the world. And yet there was also a restraint, which was so essential to it, like never too much, you know, always this reserve around the expression, which made the expression more vivid and more uh, valuable in a way for them. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot, did that, it's the same way we were just saying with Mozart. It. You have all this incredible emotion, but it's all held within this framework of the glorious music and the, and the craft and the mm. style. And it's somehow this element of, it's like almost something held in amber, you know, or held in a, yeah. in a force field, you mm. know, the, the emotion. Then it can be released at times. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to you, I, I suddenly, I kind of imagine that hopefully sometimes you manage to, I don't know, sort of, drift above yourself in some sort of meditative state, I suppose, because if you're, you're talking about being a listener, do, do you get that chance to listen to yourself um, when you're playing? You try. Yeah, that's one of the most important things is to have that awareness of what you sound like. Um, Shebuck, uh, my teacher in Bloomington, used to say that you had some part of you is there at each moment and another per person, another part of you is the general on the hill overlooking it all and mm. yeah, hearing it, thinking what should be done differently next time or whatever. You mentioned it earlier, a big part of your life when you get a chance is writing. Mm -hmm. What does it fulfill that you don't get with performing? You know, I always loved books. It's maybe it's just as simple as that. You know, I used to curl up and read, you know, hours and hours and hours. Now with the phone and the internet, it takes brute force, you know, yeah. a little bit more to read regularly, which I try to do. But yes, I mean, part of it is that when I was in college, I did a lot of reading. So I took a lot of English classes. I love to read really ambitious things, Joyce and you know, wow. Nabokov and Virginia Woolf, and I just loved immersing myself in that sort of these really interesting works of literature. And they reveal certain things about humanity and life and ourselves. That, and it takes a certain craft for them to do that. And it's so, in some ways, quite similar to music. Anyway, I, I decided to get serious about the piano after college, and I didn't do it. I did some re a lot of reading, but I didn't do as much writing. And then in my mid-30s, a friend of mine said, you know, you should just start a blog. And it was like as if a certain part of me that had gone fallow suddenly just took off, mm. you know? And I realized what a, what a pleasure it was for me to write. And especially, you know, to write about music in the way that it just occurs to you, uh, to me, in the moment. You know, as a 
not to make it fit the pattern of what a program note should sound like or what newspaper interview should sound like or an essay about, mm. but not exactly stream of consciousness, but very free, like mm. what is life as a musician like? And then suddenly you're in the middle of doing something completely prosaic. You're at the Starbucks or you're at the gym sweating and suddenly some thought about Mozart occurs to you and it relates weirdly mm. because you, you're living your life day to day with Mozart and Mozart is constantly intersecting with it. You know mm. what I mean? And these things occur to you, these unusual juxtapositions of, of modern day life and now ancient music in a certain way. And it was such a joy for me to write that way. And that's what, that's what did it. And I was doing it, you know, for just the pleasure of it and for the pleasure of, in a way, releasing my own mind onto these issues. And sometimes, you know, when you play a phrase beautifully at the piano, it's very satisfying. And sometimes when you express something about music in words, the, just the right way, and mm. you get it out. That's very satisfying too. That's kind of unusual or that's a, a strange thing in the sense obviously music a lot of the time is something that you can't put into words. You know, we talk about everything else in the world. We talk about love. We talk about, if we talk about love, we can talk about music, right? Because <laughs> love isn't really made of words either, right? <laughs> but, so I don't know. We talk about music because we talk about everything that's important to us, right? And it's true. There are elements of music that are in a way more abstract than, than words can really get but there are parts of music that are i mean that's why music is so good at setting words right you know that's why we have songs because music buoys up the words and and reflects back on them and does things so the dialogue between music and words is a really is a beautiful thing and such a core part of human experience so i don't think it's that complicated to write about music i mean sometimes it's not easy yeah. but it's not a weird thing to do recording music how do you find that process well uh, frustrating Difficult, sometimes very gratifying. It's a mix. I wrote a New Yorker piece about that called, uh, I think they called it Flight of the Concord, which is basically a study of my own insanity over a recording session. So it's a weird thing. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we think of a microphone as a sort of objective, you know, there's this microphone that just plays back what you play, but it's not true. Different mm -hmm. microphones get different things. Piece sounds different with a different microphone. You get different, less bass or... It just, everything becomes different depending on how you put it all together. So yeah. recording is a really interesting in that question of what is the sound? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you hear yourself, there's always this moment, you know, you play something, you go down to hear it in the booth. It's totally different from what you imagined. It's like looking in a mirror, but the mirror just changes in front of you. Mm. Yeah. When you sit down to the piano for the first time, what, what is it you do? Do you play the piece that's on your mind? Do you... I don't know, get to know the, the sound of the piano? It depends. Every day is different. Practicing is different. A lot of it, the first hour is usually pretty meditative in terms of looking at certain passages and muscles, mm. just waking up muscles, warming them up, you know, making them able to do various things, slowing them down, speeding them up, you know, getting this, in a way, Richter had a, I think it was Richter who said, the most important thing in practicing is to shorten the distance between the brain and the tip of the finger. And it's like connecting from one to the other mm. all the time. That's what I do for the first hour. And then I start to think a little bit more about, you know, music. And I go through the piece, in, you know, in section. All the, I could bore you for hours with, like, how, <laughs> how do you write? It's the most boring thing in the world in a certain way. And yet there's something kind of spiritual about it sometimes when you're doing it well, yeah. you know, and you find certain things in yourself that you didn't expect. I've spoken to a few pianists in the past, and um, a lot of them have sort of uh, rituals or things they do before they go on stage. Whether that's eating cheese or chocolate, is this something for you? It probably carries on from what we were just talking about. 
Uh, I always have spaghetti and meatballs before every concert. Really? Yeah, spaghetti and meatballs or bolognese, it depends on, yeah. Uh, and I go to the gym, I tend to go late afternoon before the concert to get my blood flowing and just feel really? a little alert and alive, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Those are my rituals, I try to sleep. And when you come off stage, is the adrenaline pumping? Yes, yeah. I like to have a beer waiting off stage if possible. So if the stage managers at all these states are listening. Thanks to Jeremy for taking the time to speak to us. The Academy's talk with Jeremy Denk runs from the 21st of February to the 10th of March 2019, taking them to Florida, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Arizona and California. Under the direction of Tom O'Keller, they will showcase music by Mozart, Britain, Albanoni, CPE, Bach, Haydn, Elgar and Bartok, plus a brand new work by the orchestra's composer-in-residence, Sally Beamish. For full tour dates and to book tickets, please visit asmf.org. I'm Benesh Maid, and you've been listening to an Academy of St Martin in the Fields podcast. That's about all we have time for, but as usual, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you have heard. So please do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag ASMF podcast. Thanks for listening.